Horse of a Different Color by Ralph Moody, University of Nebraska Press, 1968, Chapter 14, Flood. Father, as I get ready to read this chapter, it's Thanksgiving Day, and I'm just so grateful that uh, you have watched over the gathering of each uh, child and grandchild around the world. I thank you that um, that they were able to be with others who uh, love them and who they love. I pray that um, our gratefulness would be a reflection of our complete dependence on you, uh, delighting in all that you uh, bring into our lives, good and bad, and uh, that in the short time we have on earth, that we would spend our days gladly and willingly declaring your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Thursday forenoon, June 2nd, I was working in the Republican Valley southwest of St. Francis. There I heard of a cloudburst at Atwood, 30-odd miles up Beaver Valley from Cedar Bluffs. Cloudbursts weren't uncommon in spring, so I paid little attention to the report and spent a couple of hours dickering over a few cattle. When I moved on, the next rancher told me that a second tremendous cloudburst had followed the first and that Atwood was flooded with water at the highest point ever known. Beaver Creek was certain to overflow at Cedar Bluffs in, if, in any such flood, and Marguerite, the children, and the stock might be in serious danger unless there was plenty of advance warning. So I put in a phone call right away. Effie said the word had been telephoned through within minutes after the first cloudburst struck, that she'd put out line calls up and down the valley and that everyone was safe. Bob, she said, had left for a load of corn just before the word came through, but made it back in time to get the family horses and cows out. Bill Justice and a couple of boys from town here fetched out the furniture, she told me, and they're down there with Bob now trying to get the hogs out. You'd best get here just as fast as you can. Don't try to come straight east on the Phillipsburg Road. The Atwood, the Atwood Bridge is out, and you can't come by way of McCook because our bridge here is out. You'll have to go south to Goodland and come on to Oberlin by way of Colby and Selden. <clears throat> Effie hadn't told me that the probability of getting our hogs out was far from good, but I didn't need to be told. The bridge on the McCook-Oberlin Road, no more than 50 yards from the house, was four feet higher than our feedlot. If the bridge had been washed out, there was little doubt that the feedlot had gone with it. The only hope was that Bob had managed to get the hogs to high ground before the bridge went. The old Maxwell nearly rattled itself to pieces, but covered the 140-mile circuitous route from St. Francis to Cedar Bluffs in three hours. There was no need of my having rushed, though, and nothing I could do uh, nothing I could do when I got there. From the corner where the road pitched downward to the town from the top of the bluff, Beaver Creek looked like the Missouri River. Swirling brown water, spotted with floating buildings and all manner of debris, covered the entire valley floor. <clears throat> at the far side, the buildings of the minor place stood at the water's edge, the corrals already awash. On the near side, the 18 or 20 houses of Cedar Bluffs huddled like frightened sheep at the foot of the high divide, saved from the flood only by the railroad grade that skirted the south edge of the valley. All I could see of our place was the tops of trees marking the course of the creek, the peak of the submerged house, and the bunkhouse, afloat and apparently caught in the big cottonwoods behind the barn. What puzzled me was a yellowish cast of the water in an irregular circle covering most of our cornfield. Guy and Effie Simmons' house was farther, was farthest back in the village, safely above any danger from the flood. There I found Marguerite and the children, frightened and worried, but unharmed. Bob, with the rest of the men, was filling gunny sacks with dirt and piling them along the railroad track to form a higher dike. 
He was mud-soaked, bedraggled, and near discouraged, nearer discouraged than I'd ever seen him. They had gone, he told me. We done the best we could, but never saved one measly hog. A wall of water three foot high hit us before ever we got him out of the lot. It washed him away like rolling logs, and we'd have gone with him if we hadn't been on horseback. I've seen lots of floods, but never the likes of this one. The water came up so fast it was knee high to a mounted man before we could get out of the dooryard. And when the bridge went out, it stove the feedlot fence all to kindling. The worst of it is that there wasn't any need of us losing a single doggone hog. If I'd been there when the line call came through, instead of off, forget it, I told him. Man has nothing to grieve over if he's done the best he could. And we're a long way from licked. There's still plenty of time to replant the corn if this water drains off in a few days. And before another winter, we'll be right on top of the heap again. But if we don't get this dike built up in a hurry, the town's going to be flooded. The water has risen six inches since I got here. Until the crest passed just before sunset, every man and boy in town, and many who came down from the divide to help us, had to work furiously to build the railroad grade high enough to keep water out of the town. It was possible only because the creek channel turned away from the railroad just above Cedar Creek Bluffs crossed the valley to surround our buildings and feedlot in a U-shaped loop, then returned to the railroad line east of town. Strangely, the flow of water past our dike was sluggish and moving up the valley instead of down. Old Kitten, being straight Mustang, could swim like an otter, and I could do fairly well myself, probably to find what was causing the backwash, but more to discover the reason for the yellowish appearance of the water covering our cornfield, I decided to swim Kitten out there. Instead of, instead of bridling her, I braided a two-foot strip of rawhide into her mane, stripped to my BVDs, wound the rawhide around one hand, and plunged her off the built-up railroad grade at the shipping pens. The moment we hit the water, I slid off her back and turned her head in the direction of the barely visible house peak, straight across what had been our cornfield that morning. The water was deep enough that Kitten swam over the fence without touching it, and by the time we were 100 feet out from the track, the reason for the yellowish color became joyfully apparent. The surface of the water was blanketed with floating ears of corn, moving in a clockwise direction as if they were laid out on a 30-acre, on a slowly revolving table. I eased Kitten in, into the edge of the mass and soon learned the reason for it. Trash and broken planks from the bridge and feedlot fence had lodged in the limbs of the big cottonwoods at the ed, elbow bend of the creek. It formed a bulwark against which the current hurled itself in a roaring, foam-crested torrent and was deflected southward across what had been the stackyard. The friction of the current as it followed the U-shaped channel was forcing water inside the U to turn in a slow-moving whirlpool. To ensure good drainage, I'd set the corn cribs on a knoll in the stackyard, standing about four feet higher than the surrounding land. That had kept the cribs from being swept away by the first wall of water. The whirlpool had been set in motion, and the corn had simply floated when the water level reached the tops of the 15-foot high cribs. There had been well over 3,000 bushels in the cribs, and from the size of the floating mass, I didn't believe that we'd lost 10% of it yet. If we'd been well-equipped fishermen, we might have been able to surround the corn with a per purse net and tow it ashore. Both neither nets nor boats, there was nothing we could do but hope that by some miracle, our corn would be left behind when the flood had passed. In spite of all the change in Bob since the end of the year, he had never lost the illusion that he'd someday find a rainbow with a pot of gold at both ends. When I told him that little, if any, of our corn had been swept away, he began talking about putting in another 200 pigs as soon as the flood went down. 
but Marguerite must have had a terrible fright between the time of Effie's line call and his getting home to take her and the children out. Though the water level had dropped a foot and all the danger was over before dark, she couldn't look out across the valley without trembling unconsciously. I'm sorry, uncontrollably. She wouldn't let the baby out of her arms or Arvis and Betty May out of her sight. Any mention of going back to the place, she became almost terror-stricken. In hope that talking to her mother would quiet her nerves, Effie put through a call to Junction City that evening, but it didn't help much. Nearly every bed in Cedar Bluffs was filled with women and children evacuated from homes on the floor of Beaver Valley, and the men spent the night wherever they had taken their livestock. Bob and I slept under his load of furniture just outside Simmons Corral, but we were up at the first light uh, gray of dawn. The water level had fallen about six feet during the night, but when the sun came up, it showed no yellow cast to the brown water that still circled slowly above our cornfield. The current above the channel was still swift, but not no longer a raging torrent. As near as we could make out from the railroad embankment, the water was even with the eaves of the house, and the bunkhouse appeared to have settled onto the barn roof. Now far outside the southeast corner of our cornfield, the creek had cut a new channel, ripping out the railroad along the foot of the bluffs for which the town was named. The water covering the cornfield was draining off slowly in the direction of the washout, though the slope of the land was slightly the other way. With our corn having disappeared, Bob could find no rainbow to say nothing of a pot of coal. He tried to keep up an appearance of confidence for Marguerite's benefit, but couldn't do a good enough job to deceive her. All day Friday, he and I rode along the south margin of the flood below town, hoping to find some of our hogs that had managed to swim until they'd reached the high ground, but we found only their bloating carcasses. The warning had come early enough that our neighbors had been able to save their horses, cattle, and most of their hogs. Almost no poultry had been saved from places on the valley floor, and drowned turkeys, hens, and roosters hung from the box elder trees all along the creek channel. We and most of the men along the south side of the valley spent all day Saturday plowing trenches just above the mud line, dragging in carcasses and burying them before the stench became unbearable. Although the valley telephone lines were down and all communication cut off, we knew the conditions on the north side must be equally bad, for we could see men with teams and stone boats dragging carcasses up from the margin of the flood. When we went back to the village that evening, Effie took me aside and asked, has Bob got anything left that he can call his own besides that load of furniture? Certainly, I told her. He doesn't owe a nickel. His big team is worth $400, even with conditions as they are. And there's the Buick, his saddle mare, and a couple of milch cows. I suppose you know that he just paid nearly $500 for corn and was hauling the last load of it home when the, when the flood struck. But he still ought to have about $100 left. And I owe him 70 from last week's shipment. Well, she said... I don't reckon it's any news to you, but Marguerite's expected in September. When a woman's that way, she's liable to get lots of notions into her head that she won't, wouldn't get otherwise. And that's what's happening to our Marguerite. She's as scared of taking them little children back to live in that house again as the devil is of holy water. And ever since she talked to her mother, she's been homesick. So homesick, she can't hardly stand it. <clears throat> It'll be leastways a month before that house can be dried out and cleaned up enough to live in. And she'll go start staring crazy if she has to sit here that long with nothing to do but worry. What I've been thinking was that if Bob could afford the train fare, he ought to send that girl home to visit her folks till the house is ready and signs of the flood kind of wore off from the valley. Like as not by that time, she'll be over her fright enough that she'll be glad to come back. Why don't you kind of drop a hint to Bob? I didn't drop a hint. 
told Bob straight out what Effie had said, and that I thought she was right. He did too, and I never saw a woman happier than Marguerite was when she when he told her. There wasn't much getting done, ready to be done, and Sunday noon she and the girls took the train from Oberlin. By Monday the water had drained off enough that the creek was back in its gorge, leaving the valley floor leaving the floor of Beaver Valley a half mile wide morass of soft mud spotted with mounds of wreckage and debris. From what remained of the railroad grade, Bob and I could see that the house and barn, protected from the main current by the big cottonwoods and the built-up bridge approach on the overland of Cook Road, appeared not to be badly damaged. The bunkhouse sat squarely atop the low-pitched roof of the barn. But all the smaller buildings were completely gone, along with the haystacks, corn cribs, and most of the feeder lot fence. Miraculously, the woven wire fence around the cornfield looked to be very slightly damaged, though banked high with debris and mud. Late Tuesday afternoon, I thought the mud might have dried out enough to hold up my weight. Wanting to find out how much damage had actually been done to the house, I took off my boots and socks, rolled up my jeans, and set out from, from the shipping pens. The bank of the railroad grade was fairly firm, but the first step in, onto the cultivated field, I sank to my knee. And on the way down, my bare toes raked across something that felt like an ear of corn. I reached into it, into the muck with my hand, and found the ear buried under five or six inches of silt that had been brought down by the flood. <clears throat> there was no sense in trying to reach the house, but since I was already as dirty as, I'd, as if I'd fallen into a hog wallow, I took a few more steps, and each one my foot struck an ear of corn. I spent an hour waiting around the field and discovered the story of our corn as well as if I'd been able to watch every ear. The reason for his disappearance the first night was that the cobs became waterlogged and the kernels coated with mud, causing the ears to sink a few inches below the surface. Their position left no doubt that they had continued circling and had settled gradually with the silt as the water, slowed by the debris caught in the fence, drained slowly away. The number of ears I found made me believe that nearly all our corn was still right there on the place, although buried under a few inches of mud. I thought it could be salvaged by turning hogs into the field as soon as it had dried out enough to bear their weight. After scrubbing myself under the fire hydrant at the grain elevator, I took Bob to the edge of the field and showed him the bushel or so of corn I dug up out of the mud. I explained why I believed that 3,000 bushels might still be on the place and told him how I thought it could be salvaged. He agreed that most of the corn might be there, but said it would rot before hogs ever rooted enough to find it. We were trying to figure out some other way of salvaging when Harry Whitman shouted from the elevator, Telephone! As we hurried back along the track, he sang out, It's for you, Bob. Effie says it's Marguerite calling you from Junction City. <coughs> Harry and I stayed outside, but after Bob had talked a minute or two, he rapped on the window and motioned for me to come in. From the look on his face, I knew he'd found a rainbow, one with a pot of gold at each end. The tenant on the Web King place died last night, he told me, uh, when I went in, and that's the best half section of corn land anywhere around Junction. Marguerite's folks have been to see Ms. Web King, and she'd leave me the place uh, for the rest of the year if I can come right away. The corn's all planted, and she'll give me a third of the crop for farming and shucking it. Take it, I told him. It will be too late to plant corn here when the land dries, and you could never make as much on cattle shipping as on a deal like that. Besides, I don't think this house will be fit for Marguerite to live in again. The only thing I'm not sure about is whether or not Mr. Noble will need you here for the trial. It took three or four more phone calls, but before the evening was over, everything had been arranged. 
Bob had a lease on the Junction City Place for the remainder of the year, but a promise of renewal if he'd done a good job. We'd ordered an immigrant car into Overland for shipment of his horses, cows, and furniture. It would be shipped on, July, on June 9th, and he would follow in the Buick after testifying on the 10th. Wow, that is really neat how opportunity came for Bob and Marguerite. But that is a powerful flood, isn't it? To think of that much water uh, wiping away bridges and houses and floating everything away. Love you guys.